Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Lori Flores, author of Grounds for Dreaming, Mexican Americans, Mexican Immigrants, and the California Farmworker Movement, published by Yale University Press in 2015. Dr. Flores is an assistant professor of history at Stony Brook University, where she teaches classes in U.S., Latino, labor, immigration, and borderlands history. Her research and writing focuses on Mexican-American life, labor, and politics in the post-World War II period. She is particularly interested in the working and social relationships between Mexican-Americans and Mexican migrants. Hello, Lori, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, how's it going? Wonderful. I'm going to add that Lori and I are sitting on a nice little balcony at UC Santa Barbara. It's we are beautiful. attending the third, third, biannual. third biannual Sal Castro Memorial Chicano Studies Conference yes, at UC, here at Santa, UC Barbara. Santa Barbara. It's, you know, classes are in session. Students are moving back and forth. We're here by a lake. I can see the ocean a little bit. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it is a sunshine. beautiful day. We're going to try not to get too distracted with this gorgeous <laughs> weather and make our listeners jealous who may be on other parts with less uh, country Sorry, with guys. less pleasing <laughs> weather. But <laughs> um, So, Lori, uh, so glad you're, you're with us here on the channel. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, about your background? Uh, well, I grew up in South Texas, a little town called Alice, which is sort of near the Corpus Christi area, and didn't really leave Texas for all of my childhood until I went to college at Yale. So Yale was a bit of a culture shock to me, but it was, you know, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life because I made, you know, good friends, first of all, and got a great education. But um, that's where I sort of fell in love with Latino history because I took a Mexican-American history survey course with Stephen Pitty, mm-hmm. who's still there at Yale. Right. And uh, I just really was blown away by this class and this realization I had as like a 19-year-old that I could make a career out of reading and writing about, you know, Mexican-American history. and Exactly. So, Mind-blowing, right? <laughs> yeah, it totally blew my mind. And so um, I asked Steve to be my advisor. He said yes and and always treated me like a future colleague. Like, I think he always sort of had this faith that I would go on to graduate school, which I did. So I went on to Stanford and studied under Al Camarillo uh, and got my PhD there in 2011. And this book, Grounds for Dreaming, is an outgrowth of the dissertation I worked on there. So it was while I was at Stanford that I got interested in the Salinas Valley. Right. You know, I'm particularly interested in the the title. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I imagine it, it may have taken you, if you're like me, forever to finally settle on this. But <laughs> really funny story. It's just it. so grabby. Yeah, why don't you tell us about it? I mean, Grounds <laughs> for Dreaming, there's a wonderful subtitle that gets very detailed, but yeah. that brought so many different metaphors to my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to stop and let you explain how you came to to decide on that. I'm so glad you asked me that question because it's a really funny story. So, okay. So this title took forever to come up with forever. Like my dissertation was called fields of division. And then it went through all of these different other kind of working titles. And then when I got a book contract, um, I had changed the title to Unharvested Dreams, and it still had the same subtitle. But then I was on the bus one day with one of my colleagues, and he said, 
That sounds like a book about IVF, <laughs> in vitro fertilization. Oh, <laughs> He's like, I don't know about that. And I was like, okay, well, you just ruined the whole thing for me. So I had to like scrap unharvested dreams <laughs> and um, come up with a less scientific sounding title. So I was asking everybody on Facebook, over email, what do you think I should call this book? And it just kind of came to me while I was on the phone with my sister and we were brainstorming and we were trying to think of maybe songs we knew that had lyrics in it that had to do with agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like this Bruce Springsteen song that she was like thinking of. I was trying to think of other things. And then um, we just started talking about like earth, soil, right. ground. Right. Like, But we needed a title that sort of captured this simultaneous darkness and optimism. And so Mm. I wanted to keep the word dreaming in there because I didn't want this story to kind of end on this note of, you know, this is it and there's nothing we can do about, you know, farm workers struggle for rights. I didn't want it to be this story that was coming to some sort of end. So with the dreaming part, it's like we've got the agricultural language in there and we have this kind of image of um, people whose you know, dreams do not have to be over. If, you mm-hmm. know, the the struggle for farm worker rights and justice continues, I think there is a chance we could do right by the people who harvest our food every day and um, give them more of the protections they deserve. So um, that's how, that's a long answer to how the title came about. But uh, I went through so, so many years of trying to figure out a title I was happy with, and I'm really happy with the way it came out. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's grabbing, I think, um, in, in a way that it's, particularly when you start to read the book, it, it sends, it does what a wonderful ca- title does, is it, it encapsulates an argument, but it, that does exactly what you were saying. It's, it, it, it goes, there is no ser- sort of, you know, declension in this type of narrative. It's, it's, you're not left with a kind of like a sad decline of a type of a movement or a, a hopelessness in, you know, the farm worker conditions now. Um, it is very nuanced, uh, that the narrative is, but it does for me, uh, just, uh, make connections to not only this movement, um, but also the dreaming part. I mean, for them, uh, for these farm workers, what it is that they were thinking was possible, right? When they were organizing, when they're participating, and then also it seems to me to even connect to later movements. I mean, it made me think now, although I know it's not necessarily part of the book, I mean, the, the dreamers now and just the continued right. struggle of uh, Latino justice in, in various elements that, that continues to exist. Um, so, wonderful title. Oh, thank yeah. you. And the image is also great, too. I think this yes, cover uh-huh. image of people with their backs to the camera kind of looking out into the horizon, mm-hmm. standing on, you know, the bare earth, and you can't really tell if it's sunrise or sunset, but they're kind of looking into the distance. It's got this poetic feel to it and this kind of ethos of um, hopefulness that I think uh, can come through. Certainly. Well, the book is on the the Salinas Valley, and I wanted you, you mentioned this in the introduction, and I thought it was a great way to open the book. You you talk about the Salinas Valley's most famous native son, uh, John Steinbeck, and and how in ways uh, his his wonderful work uh, has maybe for for most people that hear the Salinas Valley, it, it's established a certain narrative for them and brings certain images to their mind, and that's great. 
great for the stories that he tells, but how has that in ways limited um, the the more nuanced and deeper history of the region? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want I don't want people to think I'm hating on Steinbeck. No, I, not I just at all. think I do. You know, um, I build upon Steinbeck. I think the the view that people have of the Salinas Valley based on his novels and his writings, I think what he does communicate is that this place is populated by a very colorful array of characters, people, um, events. This is a dramatic place. It's a place to pay attention to in terms of social relationships, race relations, economic, you know, shifts and transformations. And what I wanted to do was um, sort of complicate the Latino community, because Steinbeck doesn't often really complicate his um, characters, Spanish-speaking characters, all that much, but it gives us a base from which to be familiar with the region. You imagine, like, these lush vegetable fields. You imagine um, this kind of thriving agricultural economy and the Salinas Valley becoming this giant in agribusiness by the mid-20th century. And so I want to use that to draw people in, to get people um, imagining that kind of backdrop and then adding another layer onto it, which is what if we shifted the narrative of this place, this narrative of this agricultural empire to be a narrative that centers on... Latinos that centers on the farm workers upon which this region's wealth was built, you know, for so many decades. And if we flip the script in that way, the story of the Salinas Valley, it doesn't get any less colorful. It doesn't get any less um, interesting. It gets just more complicated. It might be darker. There might be darker truths there about racism and violence and conflict. But at the same time, you're doing justice to a community that may have been given short shrift in these public narratives about this region. Right. Right. Well, and about the, you know, the very nuanced and, you know, even colorful demographics, if you will, of this region, you're, I want to begin with your second chapter because I think you do a, a great job of, of painting that picture. Uh, you describe the Salinas, uh, Salinas and the Salinas Valley as, as a place of racial meeting grounds and battlegrounds for this very multi-ethnic population that inhabited the region during the 1940s, which is, you know, right uh, where this chapter is situated. So what was it about certain spaces and social relations within the Salinas Valley that made them one or the other or both? You know, you, you bring a couple, you bring an example in or, or two. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So first of all, uh, the Salinas Valley is one of the very first places that's importing Mexican guest workers uh, by the train load. So it's 1942. We are entering, you know, the Second World War. The U.S. government is looking to fill this labor void by uh, agreeing in this binational labor agreement to import braceros, Mexican guest workers, from Mexico to work on uh, U.S. railroads and in U.S. fields in agriculture. So along with places like Stockton or um, Oxnard, Salinas and the Salinas Valley become this kind of destination for braceros to begin uh, infiltrating the labor market as these agricultural workers. So that is one thing that's happening in the World War II years. Another thing that 
is happening is that the Salinas Valley is really near um, the military installation of Fort Ord uh, along the coast, like the Monterey Seaside area. So with that confluence of migrant workers coming in to work in the fields and soldiers sort of being around the area, whether they're on furlough or they're just, you know, at the base um, and coming into Salinas, you know, the Chinatown district on weekends to see a movie or to eat at a restaurant or go to a nightclub, you've got, you know, those two populations of people mixing with locals. And then at the same time, you've got these Tejano migrants coming from Texas and adding to the diversity of the region. And so the World War II years, which I cover in Chapter 2, are this time where all of these people are meeting together. They're meeting in public spaces like church or, you know, taxi stands or, um, you know, dance clubs. They're meeting in the workplace, out in the fields, but also in, you know, packing houses or um, other jobs that they're having. And then soldiers coming into contact with locals um, during wartime. So this is where we get a lot of things happening, like um, the Salinas Valley's version of the Zoot Suit Riots. They explode um, after the Zoot Suit Riots in L.A. because, um, you know, the Zoot Suit is catching on as a fashion, not just in cities like L.A. or Detroit or Harlem, you know, in Manhattan, um, but they're also taking hold and taking root in agricultural communities, too. So I talk a lot about Zoot Suiting and the conflicts between Zoot suitors, soldiers, local residents, braceros. Um, and then I talk about, um, you know, these meeting grounds, these moments of bonding that may happen between different people. So in unexpected ways, we get some sort of bonding happening, perhaps between um, Anglo-Americans who were Okies, who migrated as Okies in the 30s, coming into contact with Mexican-Americans or braceros and forming working relationships with them or social friendships with them. So in this era of the early 1940s, you see both people getting along with each other and people just totally not getting along with each other. Right. And I, I appreciate in this chapter uh, how you you talk about these things like the, the you know, Salinas value, uh, not value, the Salinas version of the Zoot Suit Rights, but it, it operated quite differently in... In Salinas, right? And it's particularly, you, you focus on, it is a very multi-ethnic place and you bring a lot of these other, you know, non-Latino, if you will, non-Mexican, uh, ethnic Mexican uh, characters and people in, but uh, the, the through line, the, the theme throughout the book is the interactions between the Mexican-Americans themselves, as well as Mex uh, Braceros, and then uh, eventually other forms of, uh, of Mexican immigrants, whether undocumented immigrants, which will come on later. And uh, so the the conflict and both the, the elements of tension and uh, uh, cooperation that, that tend to go throughout the, the, the book is about this particularly, this triad, as you refer to them, right? Yes, this kind of triangulated relationship between these three groups of Mexicans. Yeah, the Mexican-Americans, Braceros and undocumented migrants who start coming in larger numbers in the late 40s. And um, it's these relationships that I think are really complex. They kind of put twists on what we think we know about Latino history and Latino life in California. And so going back to the Zoot Suit thing, for instance, so many of us may kind of take as the 
um, common narrative that zoot suitors, especially in places like L.A., were the ones at the bottom of the so- social hierarchy, right. that they were suffering a lot of violence and brutality at the hands of the LAPD or um, naval servicemen and, and, and suffering a lot of violence. But interestingly enough, in places like Salinas, where you've got braceros, zoot suitors saw themselves as superior to braceros and mm-hmm. treated them mm-hmm. with violence and robbed them and attacked them and targeted them um, because of this notion that they may have you know, seen them as inferior to them socioeconomically, citizenship-wise, and perhaps even in terms of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that puts a very different twist on what we think we know. And that's just one example of the type Types of um, inter-ethnic relationships that I talk about and how they may change what we think of Mexican-American politicization if we look at the agricultural context. Exactly, exactly. And in uh, moving on to, to the wetback era, which is covered in, in Chapter 3, uh, tensions among Mexican-Americans and Braceros, uh, a lot of this was, uh, you know, came out of the competition for similar, you know, labor space, right? Um, but in this time, a you know, the, the 1950s, that is, particularly after World War II, uh, this third group comes in. Uh, you talk a little bit later, and we'll talk about that, about the, the struggles extending and terminating the Bracero program. But early on, even uh, undocumented immigrants start to be another population. So will you explain for us and discuss the, the fields of division, the division that existed between these three different groups at this time, between the Mexican-Americans, the Braceros, and the undocumented immigrants? Yeah, well, like you already said, um, labor competition is a big thing here. So Mexican-Americans are threatened by both the um, braceros and undocumented migrants because they are being displaced by them. So employers are definitely preferring braceros because they're cheaper. They're mm-hmm. working for less. They are prohibited in their labor contracts from unionizing. So now employers have a way to uh, pull upon this workforce that is not going to rebel against them or that they, you know, see as more predictable, for instance, than Mexican-Americans who could theoretically join a union, go out on strike at harvest time and disrupt um, their, you know, cultivation cycle. So that's one thing at play here. Another thing at play here is this is a time where the INS is ramping up its surveillance and its efforts at policing the U.S.-Mexico border. So even before we get, you know, the infamous Operation Wetback of 1954, in agricultural California, the US, the INS is already instituting things like Operation Sacramento, Operation Salinas, Operation Stockton, um, all of these different little operations in which they're doing what Operation Wetback would do later in that these are, you know, big dragnets which are trying to deport people apprehending them in public spaces, at work, on the street, um, in movie theaters, in churches. You know, these INS authorities are already recognizing that the Salinas Valley and other agricultural hubs in California are sort of these wet spaces. It's like these spaces in which employers are complicit in the, quote, wetback problem and... It's that presence of the INS, because the INS sets up branches all over agricultural California, and then Mexican-Americans start getting very even, you know, more resentful, because not only are they having to 
compete with braceros and undocumented migrants, now they're being assumed to be undocumented themselves because of this racial conflation that's going on by the INS and by white Americans thinking, oh, well, you know, your last name or how you look or the Spanish you're speaking makes me think you don't belong here. So Mexican-Americans who up to this point had been fighting so hard for social inclusion and respectability feel like it's all going to be destroyed by these new competitors in the labor market. Right. And you, there's a couple things that you, you bring up in this chapter. There's first, there was a great phrase you have in here that really I think encapsulates what the presence of um, undocumented immigrants came to signify at this point. You, you have in here uh, that identities had become commodities uh, around this, this time when these raids are being conducted and you already had the presence and tensions of, of braceros, but how did the, again, the presence of the undocumented immigrants kick that up a notch, if you will, to where this real, uh, this identification as a Mexican-American or even we're having this triad of a, you know, or a bracero, which had a, a sense of, you know, legality to it too and being a, having a contract that you were tied to. How did that just kick up this, this, um, this, what will we encapsulate within this phrase where the importance of identity? Yeah, identity is, that's what I found most fascinating in researching for my chapters on the 50s. It was this time where because the INS you know, La Migra was becoming such a big threat and presence in the lives of Latinos. We get undocumented migrants purchasing these false documents of identity. So pretending to be someone you're not, pretending to be a U.S. citizen, acquiring birth certificates or uh, driver's licenses, um, photographs of yourself in the United States, doctoring certain documents. All of this stuff is going on so, so very much that people are buying identity. They're trading them, they're selling them, they're switching them. And Mexican-Americans certainly find this upsetting. And in fact, we see cases in which Mexican-Americans are calling in to the INS about undocumented migrants that they know about in their communities because it had gotten to the point where they were frustrated. They were frustrated by the fact that the INS was stopping them Mm -hmm. and assuming they were undocumented. And so... I argue that one of the ways in which they sought to present themselves as respectable Americans was to turn in those who they felt were breaking the law. And then on the other hand of the equation, braceros, you know, have this legal contracted identity. They are supposed to be there. They have a, you know, a reason for being there. But if they're with an employer who they really do not want to be working for anymore, if they want to get out of their situation, we get a lot of people skipping out on right. their labor contracts mm-hmm. and they're called skips. Right. So in looking through governmental documents, I found that in the Salinas Valley, more braceros skipped in the Salinas Valley than in any other part of California. Wow. Even the Imperial Valley, which employed so many more thousands of braceros, it was the Salinas Valley where we see the highest number of skips, almost up to 20% right. of braceros were just leaving um, because they just did not want to work for those employers anymore. It was um, too harsh conditions for too little pay. And it's interesting because then Braceros adopt this 
illegal identity by skipping out on their contracts. Now they are joining the ranks of the right. undocumented and embracing that quote illegal identity and for the US government that's highly embarrassing like mm -hmm. if you have a bracero program that's supposed to be the legal solution to the wetback problem exactly and then you get those braceros being you know like to hell with this i'm going to be undocumented because mm -hmm. it's a preferable identity for me that kind of tears down the rationale for having a bracero program because right. it's not helping anything um it's only adding to the undocumented immigration, you know, flow. So um, that's why the INS is trying to be so hypervigilant. And that's why the U.S. government um, is funneling so many resources into immigration related surveillance and deportation because they want the Bracero program to look good right. in comparison and they want to continue it. Uh, for many years after that. In a way, that's what's contributing to this issue of the growing undocumented population. Uh, we haven't even gotten to, gotten to the, near the end of the program yet, but is this, this insatiable demand and desire, I mean, just almost a, a drunkenness, if you will, of, of the growers on Mexican labor. Yeah. Um, can you speak to a bit, at least within this era, before the termination of the, the Bracero program, uh, how the, you know, this, this wetback problem uh, emerges and it's Part of it's skipping um, mm -hmm. and can bring in some of the other issues that are causing a growth in this population, despite the fact that we have a, a contract labor uh, agreement with Mexico that's supposed to prevent this. Right, right. Yes. Um, you know, looking at smuggling records and the ways in which people were coming to think of the Salinas Valley as a, as a destination where you could get away with blending in and that you could find work if you were seen papeles without papers. Um, that is why we get so much undocumented immigration coming to the Salinas Valley because of net networks of communication and uh, smuggler networks, people who are agreeing to take people from Tijuana or Calexico or, you know, um, up to the salad bowl of the world because mm -hmm. they know they'll find work. They know right. there's tons of braceros there. They can pass for someone working out in the fields with a contract. And sometimes the INS would regularize you as a bracero anyway, and they would not make you go back to Mexico. Sometimes they would just give you to an employer. Um, so this undocumented immigration is creating all sorts of, you know, tensions between different groups of Mexicans themselves, but also, like you said, getting growers and getting agribusiness used to always having this bottomless well of Mexican mm -hmm. labor. And, you know, the memos that they're writing to the INS sometimes are, can you guys lay off on the deportation rates right. because we need to harvest our tomatoes? You know, right. um, it's this kind of unbelievable entitlement. Ex that's the exact word I was thinking. I just, yeah. this, this sense of such a strong sense of entitlement that they were they were entitled to this form of, of labor to Mexican labor yes you know, that was shocking to me yeah they did not want to let it go they got used to that pattern and they really really did not want the Bracero program to end and were some of the most virulent um, lobbyists for continuing the program to getting Congress to, to continue the program right we've been talking a bit about the the effect of um, the Bracero program on the dynamics between uh, Mexican-American uh 
adversarial social and working relationships. Let's talk more about uh, politics, and that's a lot of what's at the meat of this book, and that's, you know, what I love about it. It's right at my heart. Um, So in in Chapter 4, you switch to a discussion of the the Salinas um, chapter of the Community Service Organization, and eventually how... Um, the division between Mexican Americans and and agricultural, you know, working Mexican Americans uh, also. So you kind of there's a division within the Mexican American community um, emerges because of it, you know it's in an agricultural space. The CSO is you know born out of a urban space, came out of L.A., had a number of chapters uh, in L.A. Uh, at least two, I believe, before two or three before they start extending up uh, to San Jose and then. Uh, to agricultural spaces with up and down California. So can you talk more about that, about this, the distinctiveness of agricultural place with this attempt to build a, a Mexican-American civil rights type of organization and movement in the Valley? Yeah, we know a lot about the CSO when it comes to L.A., right? When it comes to urban settings and what tremendous things that that organization accomplished over time. We know less about the CSO in agricultural spaces. Um, Steve Pitty in The Devil in Silicon Valley talks about that a bit in talking about Santa Clara, the San Jose area. But the CSO in the Salinas Valley, or rather they called themselves the Monterey County CSO to kind of encompass a lot more towns in that uh, region. What's interesting about it is that eventually the CSO, you know, first of all, it's founded because there is this murder that takes place between two groups of high school students, one white, one Mexican-American. And a teenager, a white teenager, ends up being uh, stabbed in this gang fight. And a Mexican-American teenager with a farm worker background is accused of being the murderer. And the CSO was an outgrowth of the group of people who were friends and neighbors who tried to get that accused teenager, you know, visitation rights from his parents in jail, get him a proper defense lawyer. The CSO grows out of that very local case of people wanting to defend one of their own. Mm-hmm. Over time, the CSO in the Salinas Valley, it splits into these two groups. You've got, I don't want to say middle class, but you've got sort of, you know, upper working class, you know, people who are a little bit more stable in their jobs, who are, you know, occupations like court reporters or maybe they're supervisors of braceros. They are up a little bit in that uh, agricultural ladder. And then you've got uh, CSO members who are very close to the world of agriculture. They're lower working class, um, the working poor, basically. They have a lot more contact with farm workers. They know what farm workers are going through. And so over time, we get two different CSOs in Monterey County. We get the CSO in Salinas, which tends to be made up of people who want to you know, reach their hand out to the mayor, to the city council, to get that respectability that they want, especially in the 50s where they want to prove that they're good Americans in the Cold War. (laughs) And then we've got that other, you know, um, contingent that is in the town of Soledad. And they are, you know, more of the type to say, hey, we need more stoplights. We need more municipal attention to our neighborhoods. You, that school principal needs to apologize to that kid for, you know, punishing him for speaking Spanish. They are being a little bit more militant because they feel they have 
very little to lose. They want to be more radical and they start to fight with these more respectability seeking CSO members. And so eventually the CSO in Monterey County falls apart because there's just so much tension between, you know, what Fred Ross called the more cream puff operation of the CSO Mm -hmm. of trying to get that respectability from city officials and authorities and that more direct action focused, maybe more radical politics of, of the other side. So it's interesting how the CSO story plays out in that context. I completely agree. I think it was a really interesting case study to see, to examine the issues that a an ethnic population deals with in a you know in in um, with an organization that again comes out of an urban setting but that's in an agriculture so gets transported to an agricultural setting so I guess what I'm, I'm getting at here is a organization that's trying to deal with a population that's not just you know either urban or agricultural you know and and that's one of the issues with uh, that you see with Mexico throughout Mexican American or Latino history is how do you organize not just such a, a diverse um, ethnic intra-ethnic population, but one that has different divisions of class, even though, as you're explaining, some CSOers were, had become a little more, if you will, like of an ethnic middle class. They certainly weren't anywhere near like the white middle class, right? But in most instances, um, but then there was a, 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 a good base of them, right, that were in this work other category, the working poor, and that the CSO, at least in this area, eventually just, they couldn't figure out how to deal with the Bracero issue. Right, they, yes. they couldn't figure out how to deal with the farm worker issue. Yeah, um, yeah. Right, and that that eventually pulls them apart. Yeah, um, and even there's a there's a quote uh, that you have in the book of where I think even even Chavez is reflecting that uh, initially when they were I, I can't remember if he was when they were organizing this chapter when he's doing the early CSO organizing work part of his career um, that even he didn't comprehend at the time just how intricate and how problematic the Brasero problem was to try to handle it. Yes, yeah, that was during the time he was trying to organize in Ventura County and Braceros kept on coming to him with their problems and Chavez felt he had enough on his plate just trying to get U.S. citizen farm workers to stop getting fired because of this importation of Braceros and so it was this tension between you know, trying to get people back into their farm labor jobs versus correcting the conditions in farm labor jobs. And that threw a whole wrench into um, his plan. And I think that's what got him interested in making that a whole separate issue of resigning from the CSO and concentrating solely on the conditions of farm workers. Mm -hmm. So the Bracero program had been pretty divisive uh, amongst ethnic Mexicans and particularly within their politics and up to this point, and that that pretty much stays until a very significant and tragic accident um, that happens in. I'm gonna let you pronounce it because I've Chualar. Chualar. Okay, <laughs> in Chualar in 1963. Will you? So will you talk about this accident and how that changed, uh, if you will, or shifted how um, the ethnic Mexican political community at least began to mobilize and, and perhaps even be a little bit more cohesive afterwards. So this is what I think is a climactic chapter of the book. It's, you know, mid-September 1963, there's a busload of braceros going back home to their labor camp after working in the fields. It's a really long day harvesting celery and other vegetables. 
and they're being driven by their foreman who's you know sitting with uh, the other supervisor who's checking the timesheets in the front you know passenger compartment of the of this labor bus and this bus you know I'll put it in quotes because it was just really mm-hmm. a converted um you know, pickup truck base. I mean, there was mm-hmm. like a big, you know, back compartment with this makeshift canopy put on top. They were two long wooden benches inside, but no seatbelts, no kind of protective mechanisms for keeping people in place. And what they did was cram, you know, over 30 people into the back of this vehicle and start driving home. So they come to an unmarked railroad crossing in the town of Chular, which is close to the town of Salinas. And the driver hears a whistle in, you know, the background, but doesn't see a train. And so he starts inching the wheels of the bus over the train tracks. And then that sound of the whistle gets louder and he panics and he still doesn't see a train, but he sort of guns the motor to get the the labor bus across. But he was too late. You know, this freight train, which ironically is carrying a load of sugar beets, you know, just comes and shears that Bracero vehicle in half. So bodies go flying, work tools go flying. Some people are thrown hundreds of feet beyond the point of impact. I mean, it's a horrific accident. It is. You know, um, I had to... There are parts I had to just kind of start skipping a few lines. You no, know, I it know. Was, it's graphic. It, it was it was very graphic. I mean, your, your detail of it is is, a, is incredible. You know? Yeah. I mean, I could really, I could see it. It's yeah. It's painful to read. It, it's painful. And I had somebody tell me she was, you know, crying on an airplane while reading, you know, that section. It's a very graphic, horrific accident. And to date was the most fatal Bracero accident in California, the most fatal vehicle accident in California history up until that point. And I think what this crash did and the deaths of 31 Braceros, uh, plus one undocumented migrant who was discovered later to have been in that vehicle too, um, what these 32 deaths sort of showed people is... You know, this is happening way too much. It's killing way too many people. And for many Mexican-American civil rights activists out there, it was the last straw. Like, this had happened enough. It was happening not only in California, but in Florida, in Arkansas, in Pennsylvania, in Oregon. You know, all these different places that are using braceros, they are dying because of reckless transportation, very hazardous conditions. And so this coalition of Mexican-American activists who are both urban-based and rural-based come together to protest to the Kennedy administration like you've got to end this program. And I think, you know, and this is what I argue in the chapter is, I think that that's the moment. Even before Chavez and his grape strike hit Delano in 1965, two years earlier, we start to see those urban-rural connections being forged Mm -hmm. out of this tragedy. Um, It's so tragic. It's so infuriating to people who are like, see, like this is not just a program that is hurting our citizen farm workers who are out of jobs. It's killing these, you know, imported laborers from across the border who we should be treating as much more than just tools thrown in the back of a truck. Right. Well, and and in particular for this, the Mexican Americanist, um, you know, uh, organizations, it, it, it galvanizes about what like what pretty much been about half a dozen or so that had pretty much had a lot of infighting before, yes, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. and if you want, couldn't figure out a way to essentially they certain moments brought them together, but this really became a moment that that began to galvan, galvanize them in a unified voice of opposition. 
and so we have the the so in part due to this this tragedy, the Bracero program is allowed to officially officially that is right expire right, officially uh, at the end of uh, at the end of December in, in 1964. Yet, um, as you explain. Mexican and, and Japanese and, and Filipino contract labor extensions continue to happen. So this this doesn't go away. Go away. Mm-hmm. Um, in the the next chapter, you continue uh, by talking about how the Salinas Valley laid an important groundwork for uh, the farm worker movement right, in in the valley. That that this. This 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 incident itself and this kind of galvanizing of the Mexican Americanist activist community was part of that. Were some other things that were that happened in Salinas to prepare the soil, if you will, mm-hmm. for the for you know the Chavistas that would come in who get a lot of the attention. But again, when we focus on these big flashpoints, a lot of times we forget the you know the underlying um, you know complexity and nuance to what's at the table, if you will. Yes, yes, and I'm so glad you saw that uh, because. We do tend to forget, you know, the years leading up to Chavez's national stardom, if you will, as this new uh, Mexican-American civil and labor rights leader. What made him so successful? What prepared that ground for him to have a receptive audience when he came to organize lettuce workers in Salinas in 1970? And I think it is in large part what farm workers are doing in terms of their own activism in the late or, you know, early to mid-1960s and then later in the decade when they're waiting for Chavez to, you know, get his grape strike off the ground and, and win. So what they're doing, what farm workers are doing at this time is using legal aid organizations to sue their employers and to file important lawsuits against agribusiness. And the main legal aid organization they go to in the Salinas Valley is CRLA, which is the California Rural Legal Assistance Organization, which um, gets funded under the War on Poverty. It's this organization that is meant to be a place where farm workers go with their grievances and go to court. Uh, to rectify conditions, wages, treatment. And this um, alliance with CRLA is a big reason why Chavez's job organizing workers in Salinas was made vastly easier because one big lawsuit that nine Salinas farm workers participate in is this lawsuit that uh, results in California farm workers being allowed for the first time to uh, have the legal right to collectively bargain with their employers. Now there's a law saying you are protected in your right to unionize and you can't be threatened with firing if you join a union. So um, this long-time practice that employers were using, this long-time intimidation of their workers to sort of be like, if you join a union, you're out of a job. They can't do that anymore, legally at least. Mm -hmm. And so Chavez's job becomes vastly easier because now he doesn't need to persuade people one by one, you know, and beg them to join a union. Now people know that they can join a union and that makes them much more receptive to the UFW when it comes to the region in 1970. Right. And there was also a a second case, right? Uh, Another one that that actually put a stop to the continued uh, importation of, of uh, Mexican and, and other, you know, guest workers. Yes. Sort of um, 
you know, quasi extensions, etc., of the uh, the Brissetto program, even though it was about to expire. But, oh yeah, uh, there were so many also. extensions. Yeah, the Brissetto program on paper was supposed mm-hmm. to end in 1964, but California growers were so stubborn; they kept right. on asking for more and more imported workers to the point where they eventually wore down the Secretary of Labor, who started right. giving them the workers. So it's like that well, at first was really bending. opposition in, in opposition to them, right? I right. His name was is, Wirtz? was his name Wirtz, right? Willard Wirtz. Willard yeah. Wirtz, right? So initially mm-hmm. he was very adamant to shut yes. the program down and ignore the growers, but they were so persistent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's almost as if there's somewhere there's there was like a grower constitution that said they had a right to Mexican <laughs> labor or something. I mean, that's that's how their their language, as you explain it, was in their letters and in their petitions and in their lobbying. It was, you know, how could you even think to to try to stop this. Right, like how can you deprive us of this labor that we need? It was this constant refrain of we need these workers. We need them because we don't have enough domestic workers, which by the way was a lie. Like they Mm -hmm. had a ton of domestic workers that they could use, domestic meaning U.S. citizen Mm -hmm. workers. They just didn't want to pay them what U.S. citizen farm workers wanted to be paid. So um, Wirtz, who was a labor law professor before he became the Secretary of Labor, yeah, at first said the Bracero era is over like, don't even think about it. It's, you know, you're not going to get any more out of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he finally bends to all their requests. And, you know, it's that's what allows Bracero importation to continue in California until 1968. Wow. When right. Salinas farm workers file a lawsuit that gets uh, the Department of Labor and the INS to stop this importation of pseudo Braceros, these pseudo imported guest workers that shouldn't be there anymore. Right. Well, that brings us up to the uh, the, the 1970 uh, Salinas strike uh, the, with the UFWOC. Can, will you discuss uh, the, the differences between the UFWOC mobilizations in Salinas versus, you know, perhaps the next, you know, most popular and well-known destination or, or, or site, which is Delano, yeah. and um, the differences so between those mobilizations and eventually the strike and how those, those came together. Labor historians, I think, have focused much more on Delano than Salinas. Delano, you know, for good reason. I mean, Delano is this first big grape strike and boycott that sweeps the nation and results in big victory. Like, it takes five years, but in 1970, the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee signs contracts with some of the largest grape growers in the world. And um, this idea of reaching out to the American public and American consumers and asking them to join farm workers in boycotting non-union grapes. It's such a brilliant technique. It's such a brilliant strategy that of course, Delano being this first example of it, more scholars pay attention to it. But I think what happens after, you know, the lettuce boycott and the lettuce strikes that go on in Salinas in 1970, they are just as important to look at because... That strike was, you know, full of racialized violence. It was full of this kind of, you know, never before seen cooperation between Mexican Americans and Mexican nationals. It was a strike that witnessed the incredible participation of women. It's just a really, really important strike to pay attention to. And in Salinas, the whole way that lettuce work is structured makes it a different place. So unlike grape workers, for instance, vineyard workers, who may not be organized into labor crews 
when they get hired. Right. Lettuce workers do organize themselves into work crews before they ever get hired. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so those are little proto-unions. Right. They are like mm-hmm. these groups of relatives or friends or people who are working together in the migrant circuit. They are already acting as a unit even before they start getting hired in the fields. So when one person in that group thinks joining the union is a good idea, the rest of that group follows. And that's automatically many more people signing union membership cards than going individual by individual and getting people to join. So the very structure of lettuce, it's ironic because the very monoculture that these Salinas Valley um, agriculturalists think is getting them the most profit is actually what's turning their workers against them mm-hmm. because that monoculture of lettuce allows these workers in work crews to act as units and to be more ready to strike. And that's what makes the Salinas strike of 1970 different is that there was this electricity. There was this readiness to join the United Farm Workers that we don't see in Delano. They were just more um, eager to get something going. Right. And it really, it even, um, it seemed from, from your the book, it, it surprised, right, uh, Dolores Huerta and, and uh, Chavez and, and the, the organizers that went into the valley and they had to essentially calm, if you will, the the lettuce workers down to keep them from striking when yeah. they wanted to. I mean, they were like, yeah, let's do this, let's do this now. Right, right. right? Yeah. No, I know. The UFW organizers like... Dolores Huerta, Marshall Gans, all of these people there, they had to stand up on chairs at union meetings and be like, okay, like we know we're going to strike, but you got to be patient. Like we can't do it right now. We've got to, you know, plan the right time. But these workers were ready to go. Some of them were highly class conscious already. Some of them had been unionists in Mexico before they ever came to the United States. So um, they really, really had to harness the energy and um, this eagerness to walk out of their jobs. It was it was quite different, and I think surprised the union. And again, on this concept of the the end of the Bracero program um, being a kind of galvanizing moment for the the ethnic Mexican activists, both you know in the fields and outside of it. Uh, there's a moment in the in the book where you describe this, where uh, Chavez comes to right uh, the first I guess meeting collective meeting that's set in in Salinas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in mm-hmm. this gymnasium. Yeah. Right. And can you talk a bit of the the you know what is it the not just the the organizational demographics that were in there. It wasn't just full of farm workers, right? Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, the people who showed up to Chavez's rallies and who showed up to those first meetings, you had such a wide array of people there. You had Mexican American farm workers, you had ex Braceros who were interested in this movement. You had undocumented migrants. You had Tejano migrants. You had Anglo-American, African-American, Filipino-American farm workers and also just local community members. You had all the media there, um, all the local media. And um, you had the Mexican-American middle class, the people who may not have been the ones out on the picket lines, but the ones who may have been, you know, working in their own ways to foster this kind of Chicano movement rhetoric, this, you know, language of ethnic pride, this language of, you know, maybe we can finally turn what has been a nightmare in terms of how Latinos have been treated in this region into this great dream that we've been having about um, gaining some more socioeconomic equality and respect 
Right, you say that, uh, I think you're right, that it's at this moment uh, around this, the, uh, the timing of this, this type of meeting and these mobilizations that the term La Raza starts to be used across, you know, say, political generations, if yeah. you will, uh, mm-hmm. where there's, there really seems to be a, a sense of collective community, um, both social and political, that is, that is emerging. Yeah, now, this is the time where we start seeing Mecha c- crop up in Salinas high schools and colleges. We um, see people engaging in Chicano protests, the students at Hartnell College start asking for more Mexican-American curriculum and more Mexican-American teachers in their schools. We get parents advocating for free lunch programs. Like, the, the Chicano movement wasn't just a farm worker movement. Right. It was so much bigger than that, and I think the Salinas Valley really fed upon all of that combined energy. And you also had these student volunteers coming from the Deep South, you know, right out of Freedom Summer or these right. other mm-hmm. African-American civil rights-focused um, movements and volunteering their time to the farm workers. So you had this very excited group of people who transcended class lines, racial lines, gender lines, age lines. It was it was incredible, the mass of people who were there in support of the union. Right, you make this argument that this is the this is perhaps the first moment right when you see a a merger of uh, urban and agricultural issues within this emerging Chicano movement at least in California at least in California yeah I think there there might be a very different story in places like Texas or New mm-hmm. Mexico or other places in the southwest but at least in California you know I it's not only that Bracero accident I was talking about beforehand but it's it's um you know this farm worker justice struggle that I think brings those urban Chicanos in from places like LA and have them add to the energy of you know that agricultural working class mm-hmm. who they may have been very disconnected from at first right. but now are intimately connected with right well the uh Conclusion moves on to a discussion of the the farmer worker movement in the in the late twentieth century. Can you talk a bit a bit about that and you know bring us up to almost to date, if you will? Yeah, the epilogue of the book tries to bring us up to date. Uh, officially, the book ends with the you know that story of the nineteen seventy strike and the victories that workers were able to secure in those um, in those moments, but. Sadly, there is still a long way to go when it comes to offering farm workers the rights and protections that they need out in the field. So over time, farm worker wages have decreased considerably if we take into account cost of living and what unionized farm workers might have been making in the 70s. Mm-hmm. The equivalent today just comes nowhere close to that. So farm workers are still not making enough. Um, they're not making a living wage, that's for sure. And they're still working, you know, backbreaking hours, 10 to 14 hours a day. Some, you know, places offer no day of rest. So, for instance, I live in New York. In the Hudson Valley of New York, farm workers who work in apple orchards or who are, um, you know, taking care of geese for pate, you know, these workers don't get a day of rest. They are working uh, seven days right. a week, kind of trapped in those uh, in on the land of their employer if they live in employer provided housing. The H-2A temporary agricultural visa program we have in um, installed in our government now, it is very similar to the Bracero program in that we are contracting guest workers and tying them to one employer with no alternative um, if you do not like where you're working. So 
workers, farm workers, are still now very intimidated to stand up and say anything against their conditions because they're so afraid that they'll be deported, that they'll be terminated, that they won't get to participate in a guest worker program ever again. And so it's that silencing of farm workers and guest workers that is very concerning to me. And, you know, things like pesticides are still a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Sexual assault and rape, you know, of female farm workers is a problem. Um, you know, the lack of health care and the hazardous transporting conditions of farm workers is still a problem. So that horrific accident in 1963, we're still seeing accidents right. like that. There was just an accident a few months ago like that um, where, you know, several H-2A guest workers were killed. And so sadly, history is echoing and mm-hmm. we're seeing it very much in the present day. And agribusiness is still evading a lot of regulation that we have perhaps instituted in the industrial sector, but have really not instituted in the agricultural sector. Yes, it is. It is shocking in in ways that this book is a work of history, yet as you read it, you can't help but see all the contemporary parallels and you know it's probably the phrase you just used echoes uh it it really does seem in ways that uh, conditions in so many instances although not identical are, are very similar you mentioned the the continued guest worker you know visa programs that that exist yet don't come anywhere need uh, near where they need to in establishing the type of protections and wages that actually acknowledge these people as, as humans and mm-hmm. uh, contributing to greatly to our society and, and our own levels of, of comfort, but also that don't come anywhere near to meeting the need of the labor that agribusiness continues to desire. Not Now it's just not agribusiness, of course. It's service, various service sectors and, mm-hmm. and, and industrial sectors uh, mm-hmm. to where undocumented migration can Although it's it's been at a, a net zero for quite That's a while, true. That's it, true. but it still continues to exist. All these dynamics are still at play. Yes, this is what we're saying. Right? And all these debates around you know controlling our borders, how we treat the immigrants in our borders. These are the same debates we've been having for decades. And um, in the conclusion, I think I sort of show readers that I that I don't consider myself just a, you know, a dispassionate observer of all of these things Mm -hmm. going on. I'm very passionate uh, in what I feel we should be caring about. And so the epilogue is kind of this call to be more aware of the world we're living in today and how um, if we just pay attention to history, we may realize that the kinds of questions and the kinds of debates we're seeing in the political realm, these have been questions and debates we've seen before. And if we don't do something different, we're never going to give this very vulnerable population of workers the protections they deserve. And of all, you know, the different working populations in our nation, farm workers are some of the most invisible, unheard people. And if anything, we need to be paying greater attention to the ways in which we treat them. Exactly, uh, that, and that is indeed the call that seems to come across in the last in the closing pages of the book, where you you really state emphatically that the that the, the work collectively is is sought to help us understand the the importance of of Mexican um, Mexican Americans and ethnic Mexicans in agricultural communities in uh, you know our lives and our nation's history, whether that be politics, whether it be you know our broader society, and as the issues that we're talking about, just in, in the 
you know, this very base level of what ends up on your table. You know, yeah. there's the lives of these people and their work has throughout history now for a very deep history, a very, you know, at least you know, we're, we're talking, this is rather recent, but you can go back a century and even more to see how, you know, there, there these populations have continued to uh, influence the direction of our society. Yeah, and if and anything, their importance. yeah, if anything, as Latino, as scholars of Latino history or Latino studies, what we're trying to do is make clear that Latino history is American history. Exactly. Right. That no matter if you're studying World War II or the Cold War or um, the New Deal or Reaganomics, I mean, you, you mm-hmm. have to consider that Latinos have always been a part of the greater national narrative. And it's just that you know, more people need to pay attention to the to the ways in which we can see the Latino condition as emblematic of significant transitions in our nation's history and significant moments. It's all about shifting the lens, and yes. mm-hmm. um, and I'm you know really grateful that I had so much support along my journey in completing this book. It was you know people believing that this story was important that allowed me to finally tell it. Well, it's been wonderful talking about this book. I wanted to give you a moment to, although I know you're just catching your breath, having this thing come off the presses and and even uh, you know touring around and presenting it, and uh, appreciate you coming again on our channel to discuss it. You tell us a little bit on maybe what's coming up next. Yeah, well, <laughs> my answer to this question won't be as fully developed as perhaps some people would want. Um, I am still celebrating this book, and I think we should give each other time to celebrate our our books, especially our first books. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just such a big deal for junior scholars. And um, but I am thinking about possibilities when it comes to a project centered in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is a historiography that needs to be built up for sure, and it will stretch me as somebody who's just focused on the Mexican origin experience. Right. Mm -hmm. Teaching at Stony Brook, I'm teaching students of all different sorts of Latin. Backgrounds. Certainly. And I think I want to challenge myself to speak um, about this intersectionality Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Salvadorans, um, other Central Americans, and Caribbean populations. How are these um, different groups of Latinos interacting with each other in the Northeast? How can we start to construct a comprehensive history of the Latino Northeast? Um, is it, you know, how can we start doing that? And how can I build upon the, the great scholarship that has been produced on places like New York right. um, and and keep adding to it? So I'm, I'm thinking about that for now, but yeah. we will see. We'll see. We'll leave it there. That sounds great. Thanks again for your, your time, Lori. And we've really, uh, really enjoyed having you on and uh, loved reading the book. Appreciate oh, thank it. you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the channel. I, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Lori Flores, author of Grounds for Dreaming, Mexican-Americans, Mexican Immigrants, and the California Farmworker Movement, published by Yale University Press in 2015. I encourage you to grab a copy of Dr. Flores' book, and you may do so by following the link to Amazon on our New Books in Latino Studies page. You may also reach me by emailing newbooks in Latino studies at gmail.com or reaching out through Facebook and Twitter. You may also comment on this podcast through iTunes. 